the smell of podcasts in the morning. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Ribbon of Memes, a podcast where we mercilessly interrogate films previously described by other non-combatants as masterpieces. I'm Nick and I'm joined as ever by the remarkable Roger. Hello! Now we have grown weary over recent weeks uh, with the dark nihilism of film noir and the constant threat of extraterrestrial destruction. So we've turned our filmic microscopes to a much happier subject, the Vietnam War. Please, rather than understanding. (laughs) Of course. Um, And, well, of course, um, and the inherent darkness in all human hearts. Today we are donning our green berets and heading in-country to a place where the locals are dangerous. But the surf is terrific. No, we are not taking a holiday to Cornwall. We are instead examining Francis Ford Coppola's 1979 psychedelic misery fest, Apocalypse Now. But before we get into that, one bit of actual cheeriness. Glenn Lewis, you've sent us more money. Are, are you sure you meant to? Goodness me, Glenn. Um, thank you. <laughs> you know, and it says, are you sure? You should generally press no, but thank you. That's very <laughs> kind, Glenn. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, I'm, we're very flattered. So, uh, do you want to give you a patented, unhelpful summary of what this film is about? <laughs> um we well, yes, I can. Um, this uh, is the story of Captain Willard. Is it Willard? Goodness me, I've mm-hmm. forgotten already. Captain Willard, uh, a, a Green Beret, recently returned from um, a trip back home, back to the Vietnam War, in a state of some distress, but is given the job of terminating with extreme prejudice. Colonel Kurtz, um, a highly decorated colonel, but has uh, gone up to all sorts of naughtiness, um, deep in, uh, well, so deep in Vietnam that he's actually reached Cambodia. Um, mm-hmm. There is an Odyssey-like sequence as the insanity of the war and the lucidity of the film slowly decreases till we end. Um, oh, there will be spoilers <laughs> in this podcast, <laughs> as ever. I should point out. Yeah, the Americans um, don't win the war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's very if you weren't aware of that. Um, uh, and yes, Kurtz is finally met, bloated and dark, in the centre of um, a mysterious temple. But we'll get into that uh, that that laughter. That's the that's the brief summary of the film. Um, how should we start with this one, Roger? How does it? This is quite different from my usual <laughs> fare. Yeah. I say. Well, I think first of all, we, we've been talking before about one of the characteristics of qualification for the, for being discussed on this podcast as being a film that has been widely imitated and this has been very widely imitated and yes. for me coming to this not having seen it before um it's the same problem i think we may have mentioned this hmm. some years ago a friend of mine read tolkien for the first time having read a lot of other more recent fantasy literature and found it very very unimpressive because you know seen all this stuff before it's full of all these cliches, hobbits and dwarves stuff. But, you know, Charlie Don't Surf, I Love the Smell of Napalm in the Morning. I mm. mean, Terminate with Extreme Prejudice was not a widely used phrase before this film. I th- that was going to be my poster child of example, because when it is said in this film, very close at the beginning, during the briefing, with Harrison Ford as G. Lucas, interestingly mm. enough. Um, <laughs> we'll uh, come back to that. We'll come back to that. But uh, when it is said by, I think it was by one of the directors or assistant directors, um, it is, I can imagine at the time, if you weren't aware of that, it would be a portentous and dark moment. Instead, it just feels like, oh, I've seen that before. But as you say, that was that was actually used by the military, I believe, and was then probably used for one of the first times in this film. 
I, I think this was when it reached the public consciousness in a big way. Yeah. But um, the thing is, it was... This this is revolutionary in that it was the first film to do anything like Vietnam, not as a propaganda treatment. Yes. I mean, we had uh, the one I can think of memorably that was a propaganda treatment. John Wayne was in the Green Berets, I believe. Mm. Um, and that was a full on. It was it was very much in the style of a World War Two propaganda type film, mm-hmm. uh, heroism and all that. But very quickly, this was this was 1979, which is four years after the fall of Saigon. But it had been in gestation for much longer than that. So it was very close to the Vietnam War when it was released. But it was filmed, it was written during the war and filmed very close to the war. Yeah, I I think that was part of the problem. It was still a very raw spot uh, on on both sides. Because I I, I get the impression, really, that a lot of Americans just wanted to say, OK, it is finally over. Now we can forget about it. We don't want to be reminded of. Yes. I mean, this is a war that was going on, uh, Was it? I think it was 11 years uh, with the it, Americans. It depends how you count, but yeah. Yeah, but certainly it was a very long time. Well, it's interesting there you point out, Roger, there are actually two sides in this war, which I'm not sure necessarily comes across in a lot of <laughs> Vietnam films. But there we go. And it's, yeah, as a modern viewer, obviously I'm I'm a lot more aware of some of the stuff that people watching this for the on, on its release would, would have been reading, would have been finding out about for the first time. It's hard to know because, I mean, this was the first kind of media war where that was direct from what was happening into your living room. Yeah. And there were a lot of talk about what was going wrong there and what a disaster it was. So I don't know what I'm unsure of, and you may be clear, I'm not sure how much of a revelation it was that this was an insane and pointless war or if this film was a complete shock to everyone. I don't know. It was. So. I suspect it was quite variable, depending on. I mean, yes. we we talk about polarized media now, but the, but you know, if if you watch the mainstream news networks, you you would not have got any of the bad stuff. Um, right. The, the thing that does seem to have uh, provided information is um, people rotating home, and if they still had mm. friends at home, saying no, it you just can't get it. This is what it was like. Yes. And and those stories spread. But you know. Well, so this is interesting. This is the film. Where Francis Ford Coppola famously described at, I think it was the Cannes Film Festival, he didn't say, it's not, he, he said, um, this is not a film about the Vietnam War, it is the Vietnam War. <laughs> it's not at all, <laughs> um, not at all, but I think really what he's alluding to is, um, the mindset of it. He wanted the experience of it to be like going to Vietnam, or as close as it could be for someone who's just giving up to, or three, or depending on which version of the film you watched, many hours of his life. <laughs> or her. Yeah, but, you know, it, looking at the imitations, without this we probably wouldn't have Platoon and Full Metal Jacket, at least not in the same way. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And if we didn't have those, we probably wouldn't have Aliens. So, you know. Oh, that's a, that's a dark thought. Goodness <laughs> me. Yes, but, that's very true. They're very vietnam uh, the Marines are straight out of a Vietnam film. You know? I, I, I do think it took somebody to do the first film about it, and then it became part of the filmmaking lexicon, and that, but that, that's what we're saying, the, the imitation yes. happens. Yes. Yeah, I think, I mean, we often leave this to the end. I think I, I, I'm going to lay my cards on the table and say, yes, I absolutely agree. I have no hesitation in calling this film a masterpiece, partially from the look of it, it is spectacular. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just beautiful. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it, it's amazing. 
imagery um and yes much ir- uh, imitated and a very new take on well a, a new situation i i feel it's a flawed masterpiece which we will get into but i yeah. i have no no argument that it is a masterpiece yeah i go along with that so yeah um, characters oh <laughs> <laughs> um, well well okay um well we well start starting with willard cuz I, I, I feel I feel it's trying to play at both sides here. I mean, in his introduction, that this is the guy who is clearly not not in a good place mentally. Let us say. Yeah, I mean that was. I mean, this is a was a that was so the the scene of Martin Sheen in his hotel room, filmed on his thirty sixth birthday, <laughs> um, drunk out of his mind. I think it's it'd be fair to say everyone wanted to stop the film rolling except Martin Sheen and probably quietly Francis Ford Coppola too. <laughs> um, he wanted to show him as a broken man. I think he succeeded in, in that scene. I found it, personally for me, um, this is, I got much more into the film later, but to open with that not understanding who this man was or why he was broken other than he'd been to Nam. And I think it's a, I think it is a pivotal and useful scene. It didn't work for me because I, all I see is a man in distress and don't understand it. And I suppose the idea is you're supposed to reflect back on it and understand it later. But as you say, he doesn't seem to be that man for the rest of the film. That's the thing. We're starting off with this guy not in a good state at all. And then yeah. as soon as we get to the briefing, he is the one relatively sane person. He is our viewpoint character. He has a shower, and it's all bad. <laughs> and for for most of the of the progress of the film, he he is the relatively sane character. Yes, but, and I, I, in part yes. because he's he's carrying our viewpoint. I absolutely agree, and, and that's that was one of the reasons. I, I I think we're honing in on the same point here that it didn't quite work for me. That he started broken, fixed himself, and that, I don't know if you're supposed to think, oh, he's the kind of person who might. It's always suggested throughout the whole film, certainly as the film progresses, that he's more fascinated by Kurtz than he is. Hmm angered with him i mean not he's an assassin he's not supposed to be angered with him but it's not a surprise to you that he might take kurtz's side at the end the whole film kind of implies that slowly i think yeah and maybe that was the point of the opening scene but i agree with you he has a shower and then he is every inch the the um able captain well not not just that but the relative relative sane innocent compared with the mad people giving him his mission Yes, and I think the saying innocent, we may come on to this in other episodes, that is much more uh, leaned upon heavily in later films like Platoon mm. um, and that one with Michael J. Fox, I can't remember um, <laughs> the name of. Um, but yeah, I, I completely agree. What do, so what do I think of Willard as a character? Sorry, I'm just talking over <laughs> you now. No, Willard definitely. as a character, it doesn't work for me entirely for that reason. But if I forget the opening scene, or at least just put it behind me, he is... It's not really a sympathetic character, particularly the um, uh, the scene on the the boat where he shoots the wounded um, uh, Vietnamese is uh, Vietnamese person is. Um, it's, I mean, it's a pragmatic response and probably the right thing to do, but he does it in a very callous way, mm. which seems a little out, slightly out of character. But he's he feels like one of those characters that is a cipher for us and doesn't have a huge amount of personality for much of the film. 
Yeah, the, to to go off on a wild tangent, the, this is a problem with uh, some romance novels because yeah. the yeah the the assumed female reader is meant to identify with the heroine of the novel. Some authors, at least, will deliberately not give the heroine of the novel identifying characteristics to make it easier yeah. for that. I, I I think there's a bit of that going on here. You know, he he's definitely the guy we're meant to regard as mm. the one we're hanging with. Yeah. Um, and ma- maybe that's yeah. why it's jarring that he starts with this breakdown because that's hard to identify. Well, not after twenty twenty. Yeah. Well, it's it, it's reasonable. I mean, particularly the, the thing that I think perhaps came up more in later discussion was the utter disorientation of going so so called home. Yes. And meeting people who would spit on you in the street for what you'd been doing. When you had when you had been told, you know, okay, it's a dirty job, but we're saving democracy. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, um, you're expected to go home as World War Two here. And, and wo- World back. Home ain't there anymore. Um, obviously, yes, Joe jo- jo Halterman did a lot of this in the Forever War. I mean, that's basically what it's about. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because you know, home. Well, wherever you go, you take you with you, and if the you is fundamentally changed by your experiences, then there ain't no home anymore, as you say. And in in this case, it has also changed since you left. Um, that I, I feel that mentioning that here actually weakens it weakens the film because really you could have an entirely different film about that, and there have been entirely different films about that. Uh, and it, it's not yes. it's not really expanded on after that initial mention, which seems kind of a shame. I I agree. It's a bit of a having your cake and eating. It. It's an important and true point. It's just jarring that it doesn't really fit with the rest of the film. I think the the thing that really struck me, and it's only because of the other things we've been watch, watching for this, the last time we saw Martin Sheen in a mm. film for this was Badlands, yeah. where he was playing a very flattened, affect, broken man who is much more an observer than an actor of in, in, in the events. And yeah, he's a different sort of broken man here, but it, it, mm. it, it seemed kind of familiar at times. I would, yeah, I, it, I feel like Particularly yes. when he su- suddenly shoots that woman without particularly working himself up to it. Yes. That, that, that is a thing that your man in Badlands would do. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, I completely, they felt like, I mean, obviously they looked very similar, <laughs> the two characters. Um, yeah, kind of like James Dean. Yeah, a bit like James <laughs> Dean. I agree. I, Martin Sheen, clearly, I mean, as we've seen in many things since, is a phenomenal actor. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I mean, obviously, he, ha- he had his personal demons in this film. Um, I don't know that he does a lot of acting particularly, and I think a lot of his direction from Coppola was just, when he was trying to find the character, was basically, the character is you, um, as Coppola would tell him. Yeah. And that, uh, yeah, I, I think maybe that was a directorial technique. And I, I don't, I, I think without the opening scene, I don't mind. I think he does work as a viewpoint character. Mm. Um but I agree, he feels very... In a way, Badlands felt more like he was acting because he is such sort of an atypical human. <laughs> yeah. He's a, he's, a, he's kind of like a viewpoint character, but the things he's doing are just awful and amoral all the time. Whereas Willard, at least you can understand him and understand the circumstances he's in, and at least it makes more sense as a as a normal sane person whereas in badlands he's clearly not a normal sane person but the net effect is yes they look well he's, he's as normal and sane as you can be in this situation at this <laughs> in time in this situation exactly yeah 
And so, I mean, in, in something, well, we, we got, we've got to treat this Robert Duval. I mean, oh, my word. I mean, the, welcome to the Robert Duval appreciation. <laughs> the, 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 the biggest, so uh, for me, Apocalypse Now is a film of two halves. Um, it's actually I... more like a third and two thirds. <laughs> yes, probably. It works brilliantly. To a, a slightly, I don't want to say wonky, it's very well done, but slightly jarring or mismatching opening aside. It works brilliantly for me up until, uh, well, up until Robert Duvall leaves. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then after that, I, I slowly, my interest in the film because I came into, I had seen it before. I came into it. I hadn't desperately enjoyed it the first time. I came into it remembering. Oh, I'm mm. not sure I want to watch this. Um, and I loved it. I was surprised how much I really enjoyed it up until the end of Colonel Kilgore. I uh, my interest slowly waned through <laughs> the uh, the the kind of Odyssey like encounters after that, mm. and well, dropped around about the level we met Marlon Brando. I, I feel that once once they're getting into the going up the river sequence, it effectively becomes picaresque. Yeah, um, you, you could you could there there is this mention about gradually going back in time, but I don't really get that. Um, I think that is more comes across more in the Redux version. Well, of yeah, the plantation. But, but even even if you add that in. Um, I feel that a lot of those things could be dropped into any order. I mean, there, there's no, there, there is the objective, but there isn't yeah. a through line other than we have to keep going to get to the objective. There is no, you know, we need to find out where he is from this guy and then, then follow that clue to this other guy. It, it's just, we need to keep going up the river to the end and all we need to do is keep going. You know, get, yeah, get fuel for the boat. And that the plot really doesn't, you know, a lot of films that start out like that sort of odyssey complicate it along the way or make the mission change or make the people change. This film doesn't really do that. There's, they they just go to the end. They have to kill Kurtz. They kill Kurtz. They go away. And, <laughs> I mean, that yeah. is the summary of the plot. Um, which... uh, look, look, looking at Duvalo uh, just briefly, uh, a, yeah, sorry. he strikes me... In other things I've seen him in, because he has that very distinctive face and forehead, um, it's he always, you know... Out. We can, we can, <laughs> we the, can lay the cards on the table. The, this guy is Duval, whereas here, you know, yeah. quite possibly because of the hat, yeah. he, he doesn't, he doesn't bring that same instant recognizability, at least for me. And I, mm. I did find myself thinking to, towards the end of this, why didn't they get him to play Kurtz? And I'm glad to say I'm not the first person to have thought of that. No, I had, I did, I hadn't quite articulated that, but the contrast between his charisma as that character, as, I mean, he's not, he's a deeply flawed character, which you can talk about his character, but his, he's clear, he's evidently charismatic. Well, also, to, he's, he's found an accommodation of making, making the wall work for him, as it yes. were. Yes. Yes, exactly. Compared to Brando's interpretation of Kurtz, mm. uh, which I didn't find charismatic at all. Um, uh, yeah, I, I I hadn't quite articulated it, but the, there's a point. I, the, I suppose in a way, the problem with having Robert Duvall as Kurt, I don't think it quite works because he is, in on his own terms, Duvall's character Kilgore is kind of sane. Um, <laughs> he's just having to readjust reality a bit to work, to work well, it around. He's that. acceptably mad. I mean, what, yeah. one of the big questions. Yes, yeah, that's the best way. Of uh, the the. Get, gets mentioned quite a few times in the film, and at least I didn't feel that I ever really got a convincing answer, is with all this insanity going on, 
why is Willard being sent to assassinate this one guy? What is yes. different about him as opposed to all the other mad people in this war? Well, that is why, to me, I feel it is crucial that he has to be shown to be almost messianic, this kind of really special figure that when you meet Kurtz, you're like, right, now I understand this is what is different, even amongst all this nonsense. Mm -hmm. Because it has an element of saving Private Ryan, you know, this kind of idea that, look, why are we going in to save this one guy? Everyone's dying all the time. And it is like, I think think, um, Willard explicitly states what you just stated, doesn't he, at one point, why this guy when Mm. when there's so much... Well, that's the thing, the question is raised, but... I, I feel not, that if you're going to raise a question like that, you, you should at least make some attempt to answer it. And I, I didn't, maybe I missed something, but I, I didn't at least get that impression. I, no, I absolutely agree. And that adds to the anti-climax to me at the end of the film. The, so the Kilgore sequence to me, tell, I, I think it, that to me, when Coppola says this is Vietnam, that to me is, is Vietnam. The, the utter pointlessness and insanity of it and the jingoism and the excitement. I, what I really like about that sequence, because, I mean, this is, Coppola said it himself, this isn't an anti-war film because it's too, it still gets the blood running. You know, mm-hmm. it's still exciting. And that that sequence with the helicopters, um, when they weren't getting recalled to fight, fight communists in the, south of, uh, <laughs> in the south of the Philippines, um, that sequence is... Um, it is absolutely thrilling. The and, and, and a whole bunch of helicopter sim video games have pinched the use of the Ride of the Valkyries. Oh, absolutely! I mean, that is a it's a much. I, I believe there was a German propaganda film for the Luftwaffe that may have used Ride of the Valkyries first. <laughs> but the way it works for me is that it is perfect parody. It is. It's a bit too far, but it is just far enough that it's believable. Mm. And it points out exactly what it, I feel it wants to point out, that that these guys flipping love it, that it is bonkers for them. It even, to me, it is the one of the few moments, I suppose, in any Vietnam War film where it almost humanises the inhabitants. You have those quiet scenes of the village for mm. children going to school. It's not just a load of mud huts in a field. They, you know, they have a village square. It is built up, you mm-hmm. know proper settlements and and during the jingoism and the excitement and the Wagner blasting out I felt it was edited well enough that you still remember the quiet scenes before and you're contrasting that and feeling a little uncomfortable about what's happening here and then just the insanity of Kilgore like, all right, you want to try the surf now? Go, it's mostly safe while there's bombs still going on (laughs) it just, it was crazy enough but not so ridiculous and he is I believe he's a character that is only a nudge or two increased from actual models Mm. of Vietnam War Uh, he's a colonel as well isn't he Colonel Kilgore Um, I just so I think that 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 just that sequence works perfectly plus I am not a big war film fan but it's flipping good that Mm -hmm. you know the 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 helicopter attack that that's what i mean about not being an anti-war film it is like you're like you can't help but be a bit thrilled by the whole Mm -hmm. even though you know they've put the music on themselves it's bonkers it's just a pure it's a bit the only reason they're taking this village is because of the surf because it's good surf Mm -hmm. i i I think it works brilliantly i i think as as you say coppola's aware of this but there, there is this basic problem if you show horrors in a cool way and he's showing it in a very cool way then yes. even if your intentions are good at least some of your audience is going to say those horrors are cool yes exactly 
Um, and I th- it does what it does. It does what it can to try and mitigate that. Uh, I-, I feel for me that was pitched perfectly. And Kilgore mm. himself acted perfectly, you know, right from the moment where he offers his canteen, you know, because he's a, he's a soldier. He offers his canteen to this poor Vietnamese that he is responsible for blowing his guts out. But, mm-hmm. you know, any man who can fight on with his guts on the outside can drink from my canteen any day. Um, yeah. And, th- and then he's immediately he immediately forgets that when he's called exactly. away to do something else. Yeah, that is. Yes, that is. I thought that at the time and then I'd forgotten it. But yes, that is a perfect moment when he said i think someone talks about surfing or something he's like oh right (laughs) the thing i really like so this uh, sequence has some very memorable lines you know charlie don't surf um i love the smell of napalm in the morning smells like victory and particularly that i love the smell of napalm in the morning that is remembered at least by me but i think by a lot of people as this really jingoistic victorious i love the smell of napalm in the morning but the way deval delivers it is not like that he's he's reminiscing he's like he's just saying a thing that he likes a truth that he likes and he plays quite downplayed mm. he's just kind of saying oh this is i like this this is really good the phrase i want to keep saying is coping mechanism i mean what for, for most of these people the, the the ones who are still functional they have found some way of coming to terms with the, with the crap that they are experiencing and having to do yes and, and the way they're coping the way kilgore is coping is is He's kind of slightly warped reality to the point where he's actually enjoying it. What my favourite line from all of that is the one right at the end of the uh, the napalm speech, where he says, "Someday this war's going to end," and it's very flatly delivered. Mm. But it's, it's it's just a statement. He doesn't put a lot of emotion in it. But because he's a flipping good actor, you know, <laughs> it's just so clear that that is like that's really shit. I don't want this war to end. It's great. I just I, I yeah I him, him and Mad Jack Churchill. <laughs> it, it's who, just who, a... who said at the end of the Second World War, and if it hadn't been for the Americans, we could have kept that going for another ten years. <laughs> that is—I mean, you could imagine that. Apart from uh, not coming out, he would have said that if it hadn't been for the Democrats or something. Like that. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, yeah, a phenomenal performance, and says everything to me about the insanity of the Vietnam War, the utter pointlessness of it, the horror of it, the. And now this was a film originally in George Lucas's hands because he was assigned to direct this. We can talk about what he planned to do, but George Lucas had originally uh, planned this film as a comedy, and mm-hmm. I can see it in this sequence. It's a very dark comedy, but it is still comedic in the best way in that it underlines. It's a comic aspect to it, but it underlines a lot of terrible things. Yeah, it's I just great. Absolutely. One of my all time, and I really wasn't expecting to enjoy that sequence because, as you, I, I knew it, you know it all, but I wasn't enjoy, expected to enjoy it quite as much as I did. One of the things that works for me visually here, in particular, I mean, there, there's a lot of smoke and smoke grenades and stuff in, for various reasons, and, but especially when they're interacting with helicopters, the way the smoke is just blown around by the rotor wash, some of the smoke grenades are blown out of the landing zone by the rotor wash. There's, there's a dirtiness about it. Yes. Yeah, without needing to show, you know, burning children or arms blown off or whatever. Yes, it's not a very graphic film, is it, in that way? It, do, it doesn't need to be. I mean, yeah, they, they, no. they've got the guy lit up in the fire suit, and that's fair enough. But, um, but it, it, it's a sort of grittiness that you don't get in, I think, a lot of modern films where they say, well, you know, crap, we, we rented this helicopter, we're paying 1700 bucks an hour for it, we can't bring it back with a scratch on it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, you get the feeling Coppola didn't really uh, care too much about that. Well, right, he, he, that... he was getting those paid for by the Philippine government. <laughs> Let, let's cut a deal with Marcos, that never goes badly. 
<laughs> only in, well, I'm not going to spring to Coppola's defence much more, but only because the American military refused to have anything to do with it. Because, mm-hmm. And he said, I forget, there was a line in it, or maybe it was just the whole film, but they didn't, they wouldn't have anything to do with it. Um, oh, good sequence. Um, yeah. Great actor, great character. And then up the river, and I... Uh, then it all goes down. I couldn't help <laughs> noticing, well, yeah, but I I was very struck by um, one L. Fishburne, who who I, was uh, fourteen years old when they cast it. I didn't know that was Lawrence. It was only afterwards when I was reading up about the film. Afterwards, I realised that was Lawrence Fishburne. Flipping heck, that's amazing. Yeah, by the time it was released, he was seventeen. But I, I don't know how old he, he is in the 14. actual. When they I, cast, he's probably sort of fifteen, sixteen during filming. I don't know exactly. But doesn't look fourteen. They, there, there is the bit in the documentary um, where. Okay, he probably wouldn't want to stand by this these days, and I, I don't want to put too much on him, but, but, you know, this kid is saying, oh, it was fun. You can do anything you yeah. want to. That's why Vietnam must have been so much fun for the guys that were out there. And yeah. that's him before the filming, yeah. before the experience that everybody <laughs> hated. That and, they all went through, yeah. And I, I do feel you can see a certain amount of here is this kid who thinks it's going to be great fun because that's what it is in the comics coming yeah. to, oh crap. <laughs> Yes, uh, that, yes, I think that's a very good uh, And wh- whether, you know, I mean, the man's an actor, so I don't want to say too much about, well, obviously he was inspired by this or that, because he's an actor, it's part of the craft, but he does it very well, and it was obviously informed by that whole, I thought it was going to be like this, but it's now like that. And, yes. and I think he plays that superbly. The whole boat crew, I think, are brilliant, mm. actually. I was, I didn't particularly remember the characters... The first time I watched it, I can't remember how long ago, but yes, this whole the whole boat crew they were they, they I mean they're kind of slightly one note characters, but there's enough detail there. They're all very distinctive. They've all got their characteristics. They're all I, I love the whole boat crew. I, mm. I was surprised how much I enjoyed that form. So we have the uh, we have oh, I've forgotten Lawrence Fisherman's character's name. Was he clean? Mister Clean. clean. Uh, and then we have Chef, who is a chef. Saucier. Um, a sorcier, very in a very nice scene uh, with the tiger. Um, we have um, Chief. That's slightly confusing, Chef and Chief. But the Chief, I, he was a great character too. Um, much more professional than the others. Interested in getting the job done. Um, really nicely played. Uh, and then we have uh, the surf. Oh goodness, what Lance. Surf? Lance, thank you. Um, uh, I, Lance's character was done slightly disservice because he, he seems to be an interesting character. He drops an acid tad and then spends the entire rest of the film. I don't know what acid. He yeah, I, I feel it shouldn't really last that long. No, I, I'm, no I'm no expert on acids, um, but I have done some pharmacology in my time. I do believe it wears off at some point. <laughs> but he, he never ever comes back to a normal character after dropping mm. an acid tad. Which uh, I, I'm sure is in some ways supposed to be a metaphor or even a direct indication of a one way that the war changed the soldiers. Um, and it certainly was the first psychedelic war um, that the <laughs> Americans had. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. It did the character a bit of a disservice. Though I gather the actor is no stranger to, <laughs> to that sort <laughs> of stuff. Um, yeah, I, I believe in the documentary he says, no, I wasn't on acid during those scenes. I was on amphetamines and a bit of marijuana and a bit of this and a bit of that. Yes. But, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure there wasn't any acid. Yeah, yeah, I can't, yeah. I'm surprised you remember that. But yes. Um, so I, I loved the, the, the four men in a boat. That makes it sound much more jolly than it was. Uh, five men in a boat, I suppose. Um, 
Yeah, the, the, yes, the thing is, it, it is this picaresque. It doesn't, the, the scenes don't flow from one to the next, I, I, I find. No. Which is why it lends itself to this kind of redux thing. You know, the whole French plantation sequence mm-hmm. was lifted. There's the sequence. I ended up watching the redux version or maybe the final cut. Um, so I can't read that. There's the scene in the devastated, um, basically destroyed and abandoned American it looks a bit it has a slight 1950s career vibe to it which i think may have been cut out of the version yeah i don't think it adds a huge amount uh, so um, did did you get uh the playboy bunnies whose helicopter has run out of fuel yes yes so that that uh, is in redux but not in final cut i believe oh flipping x i watched redux okay <laughs> I, it didn't add a lot i must say but the, yeah these things they don't the characters don't change dramatically in them and yes you can just cut them out um and uh yeah, the, the the Redux feels to me like a potted history lesson for people who weren't aware of the French prior involvement. Yes. Um, but but I do like the whole. Yeah, all right, we're we're coming apart. You know, one one by one, we have an argument with the patriarch and leave the dinner table, I and mean, that that's very effective. Yes. Yeah, I really like the whole French plantation sequence. But I did watch it, this it, film in three sittings. Yeah, um, it, it doesn't I, half slow things down. I, I completely agree. I, I think in the cinema it'd be too long. And I, 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 I do think, you know, as you say, after the after the village assault, it, once they're getting on onto the river, it does lose its pace anyway because you don't have that same sense of progress. Even if you had a maybe a, you know cut away to a line going up the map, I think that that would give some yeah. idea of there there is something going, going on. Yes. Um, yes, I agree. I, I, my, well, so I have my own issues for why my interests waned a bit. And it's partially because of that, partially because, hmm, I mean, what we then enter into as from the utter insanity of the, the Vietnam War, I mean, that's where you start at the level of complete insanity. And then you go deeper into darkness. Mm-hmm. And the deeper into darkness is where I start to have issues. Um, this whole idea of the heart of darkness of Conrad's, because obviously the film, not obviously, but the film is loosely based on heart of darkness. Uh, and that was an explicit goal. We let us do heart of darkness set in Vietnam. Yes, and so. I think Coppola actually had a copy of Heart of Darkness with the underline while he was filming. So, you know, it really was <laughs> quite... Um, I don't know whether to save this until we've talked about Kurtz a bit. I, maybe we should, but... That's that the point to move on to at this? I mean, well, well yeah, so let, well, yeah, so they do... I mean, we could comment on the individual scenes going up, but I don't know that they're... I do have one issue... Again, this is something... The, there is a tiger sequence. I found it very effective. I, mm. I really enjoyed it. I love the effect that it has on Chief. Um, uh, and we get that lovely sequence where he's talking about being um, a sorcier. And it's just it's so incongruous in this place. To th- What I like about that is the clash between thinking about these people having the kind of lives where a sorcier is a thing. Mm-hmm. The kind of civilization where that is a possible thing. That's a chef. Not only a chef, someone who specializes in making sauces. When they talk about that in this place where that's just lost any meaning. I, I think that's mm. really... Yeah. Well done, uh, but I have significant. I, I this may just be. I have significant issues with the treatment of animal in this film. Uh, of animals in this film. Yeah. Um, this is you know uh, this is a piece of entertainment. However, you want to dress it up, and it's not okay to cause suffering or death to other creatures mm-hmm. for the purposes of entertainment. That that tiger was starved 
for some time. I mean, that may have been exaggerated by the actor who talks about in the documentary, but it, it is fairly standard to starve creatures in this way. So that they will reliably follow the food that's off screen. Yeah, yeah. well, that to me is causing suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we can talk about the very played down by Coppola sacrifice uh, which I still struggle to watch now. That you know, the, the mm. real sacrifice. Now, you know, I come from a culture where uh, God knows how many hundreds of thousands of chickens are killed every day to go mm. into nuggets. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not pretending, but to to use, there is something abhorrent about using death as entertainment, and that is exact. That was a film that uh, that was not an, that wasn't accidentally filmed. The sacrifice uh, of the. Water, buff- ox, water buffalo. Water buffalo. At the end of the, that was deliberately. Coppola gave them mm-hmm. that, that that water buffalo. I mean, presumably they got to eat it afterwards. But even so, I don't know what that. Yeah, but he gave them a load of others as well to say thank you. And I know that's how the tribe were. I just I have significant issues with mm. that. And perhaps I'm prudish, but I don't know. The it's, the it's... the the way it was shot actually reminded me of a film that I, I suspect will, will never get uh, mentioned on this podcast, uh, 1980s Cannibal Holocaust. <laughs> um, Fa- that... Famously with a lot of real animal suffering, because that was the point. Now, that's the, that's the year after this. That's the point. Well, yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, well, this, um, I I have never seen Cannibal Holocaust for exactly I, I, reason, I do not recommend it. No, well, I've heard it's not worth watching anyway, but... Um, I, I, I would have to agree with you there. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so this was given a unacceptable rating by the uh, the, the Humane Picture Association. American Humane, uh, yeah. It, it, it all gets a bit fiddly because, in theory, they were meant to be working under the American rules while shooting outside the US. Yeah. In practice, the the relevant society wasn't going to have the budget to send somebody to supervise. I, so. I think I, I find it abhorrent because Coppola has since played it down and said oh, initially, you know, oh, they were just doing that anyway. We just happened to film it. No, they saw them doing that and thought, oh, we like that. Let's do another one on film uh, mm. and, and then played it. So, oh, it was going to be. I mean, the anyway. the intercutting with the with the killing of Kurtz by broadly the same means. Yes, I, I get the point, but it doesn't seem like a thing I want to happen to make that point. No, I, I would I, e- even I, and I'm not a vegetarian. I'm so on. But well, it, even it if it pointless. had been, even if it had been effective, and I'm not sure it was filmically, uh, that would I would maybe forgive it some. But it, it I, feels I like a off, waste to me. Yes, I don't want to go off too much. I, I'm aware of the hypocrisy of you know eating meat and that sort of thing, and, and then being offended by this sort of thing. But I'd like to, I'd like it noted that it's not okay in my eyes. Um, similarly, I, I, a tangent. I, I've read the um, the Jaws. Report in our previous shows. I didn't realise the jaws that was uh, the, the jaws, the tiger shark that is on the dock in the in the scene was killed specially for the film in mm. California and then flown over to Martha. <laughs> it was pretty ripe by the time it got there, but that's that's not okay to me. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the rant, slight rant over along those lines. I have other rants to come. Um, well, yeah, I mean, we're getting to the temple, aren't we? We're getting to the temple. So th- there are other adventures that they they. Um, uh, they they have a massacre style. Eh? Oh dear, I've forgotten the name of the village. I'm a terrible human. But the Milau, 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 a style massacre, which I think that was the idea of the the cast actually that they wanted something to almost not commemorate, but to, they were. It was part of the throwing everything about the Vietnam War into it, and they wanted mm. something about that. Um, as an effective scene. I, I get that yeah, one, particularly actually. in that it doesn't 
ever quite show you why that first guy opened fire when he did. There's no. there's no, you know, the puppy goes bark and then, then he reacts. It's it's just he opens fire for we don't know for why. For some reason he's yeah. Nobody will ever know why. And that, that's, and that that's adds good. to this confusion of it. Yeah, I agree. Though I will say, and this is not the fault of Apocalypse Now, this is because that massacre has been replayed in a number of films since. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt slightly cliched to me. Oh, they've just killed all the... Uh, and that's an awful thing to say about an awful thing. But it felt like I'd seen that before. And to just have it as a throwaway thing, because it was really a throwaway episode. It doesn't affect say. anything except the guy's got the puppy in his arms afterwards. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it was... But it, hey, it was you know, the, the, this is this is one of our four female characters. Five, five in Redux. So... <laughs> We are not doing well with uh, this. Certainly doesn't pass the Bexhill test. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I suppose if we're going to have a war film where it was predominantly fought by men, then you are going to slightly struggle to. Hmm. Well, some well, some, some films make it obvious that 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 you know, I don't know. I mean, Jaws, very few yes. female characters, but they're, they're at least there. Yes. Anyway. Um. All right, well, let's talk about Kurtz, the, the, the final, the, the confrontation with Kurtz at the end of the river up in Cambodia in the ruined temple. Built um, especially for the purpose, of course. Yes, and then ruined by the rebuild. What were your feelings on it? Well, I found it very hard to see Kurtz rather than Brando. Mm. Now, I'm not a great fan of Brando, but I'm generally aware of his career. And in in his early days, he played characters who were essentially unsympathetic, but he played them very, very well so that they were a bit sympathetic. I mean, the wild one. Yes. I love, to, I... to me, is, is his canonical role. I mean, he, he got more praise for Streetcar and On the Waterfront, but uh, for, for me, that's the, you know... I I I I am a bad boy because that is the slot society has given me much more yes. than because I actually want to be bad. It's slightly circular in that you know we then have Martin Sheen who's doing his James Dean you know meeting yeah. you know the 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 man who influenced it all in the first place. But yes, I I agree. But um, then through through the, the but then through the sixties he, he's dropping off you know uh, mutiny on the bounty and oh, yeah. yeah not great and. Really, by the, by the end of the sixties, he he was not a name to conjure with at all. But then, of course, the Godfather. But then the Godfather, which we haven't really well, we can we can touch it. Not my favourite films. I, again, I accept the masterpieces because they have cast very long shadows. Those films. Yeah, we, we, we might go back and look at those at some point. But uh, yeah, it might be worth it. Um, but that but and Last Tango had said but, at least you know the, the, this is this is a, a guy who's still. Worth, you know, worth considering. You think about it when you're thinking, who are we going to cast on this? And yeah, a lot of the posters say, starring Marlon Brando. Yeah. And he looms large over the. Pa- yes. Oh, uh, yeah, all right. Let's not do body shaming. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I'm very sorry, Marlon. Uh, of course, he, he, of course we have um, in his future from the Superman films. Uh, he, I think he'd filmed that just before this. Oh, had he? So okay, certainly he it was released quite... just before this. Okay, he looks a bit. Sorry, I will stop body shaming. He looks lighter in the Superman film. But yeah, part part of the problem is because he had turned up a lot fatter than contracted, and at the same time he didn't he didn't want to play fat on screen. Yes, Um, give Coppola many options. Which is why why you get that whole you know his fire lit face Mm. rather than 
rather than anything else. And, and yeah, he, he's an, he's an actor who can carry that off, even if he does have to have his lines posted up behind the camera. <laughs> there, was, there was a lot of improvising, I think. Much of it incoherent, I also gather. Yeah, but, but the character is incoherent. And the thing is, mm. after everything else we've seen, we, I, I at least want something effective at the end and it's, yeah. it's, it's all a letdown. Absolutely. Even when it's working, it's a bit of a letdown because it could have been so much more. I, I feel, yeah, the whole climax. Kurt has been foreshadowed this whole time. And I appreciate in the Heart of Darkness book, he turns up as this, you know, dying, emaciated character. Mm. But I have to believe, for the film to work, exactly as, as we said earlier, I have to believe that this guy is, there's something, even in a war full of Colonel Kilgore's, there's got to be something about this guy that is mm. exceptional, exceptionally bad, exceptionally good, exceptionally average. There's got to be something about him. And to have this kind of pontificating... I, uh, there's no charisma to me in Brando's... Um, the the moment I really did like about it is when um, uh, when Willard says to... was Willard said to him... Um, they said your methods were unsound. And he says, mm-hmm. oh, their methods unsound. And he says... I don't, see any method at all mm-hmm. and that that i thought was perfect yeah i, I yeah. really like that but it, the film never gave me any and that is exactly it's just this kind of strange i needed some reason to why the natives had started worshipping this man as a god because without a good reason to me you're heading very deeply into racist territory he's a white man and that's why they're worshipping him you know and that is the only reason without some good charismatic reason then basically of course they'd worship him he's a civilised white guy I, I, just, uh, I, I, I believe him. one one of the cut lines is he, he, you know being being a white man who can bring the fire on demand yeah yeah. I've, I've got a rifle in other words Exa- yeah but I, he didn't even inspire that I didn't feel I didn't mm. understand why he inspired well the, Hopper's uh, one of the plans was yeah, if, if he turned up um slim and active yes. um they, they were thinking of various you know indulging all his appetites you know a, a small native harem and he and he's going out and doing stuff all the time and yes. i don't know would that have been more effective quite possibly i think i don't, I don't know so much it's what he does as well he just he needs the charisma to me he needs something like you know jack nicholson was considered for the role and maybe he would have done you know he mm. he's a fine actor he could have done something intense Something to explain to me what it was about this character that had brought me all the way up the bloody river to see him, just to see this kind of pseudo philosophical uh, <laughs> claptrap. Dennis Hopper made more sense. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm proud yeah, of him. Yeah, he um, he he actually does that pretty well. I mean, I, I will admit that the thing I was expecting uh, for for the photographer is at some point the realization that that he's run out of film months ago and he's just going through the motions. That would have been, yes, that would have been amazing. Yeah. But even lacking that, I, I thought, um, yeah, all right, he he was as off his head as many of the other cast and crew, but <laughs> he but he so. but he made that work for him, and yes. I and I do think that worked. Yes, uh, he, he apparently he needled Brando at every opportunity to the point where they they could not share any shots together. Yes, the the one shot where they are in the scene together, they filmed on different nights. <laughs> they were that bad. He was he sort of I don't know if it was needled or bullied, I've read it different ways, but, mm-hmm. but either way they didn't get on. But I, I think I, I don't know that it's oh, I I mean I don't know. I, I, I feel like, you know, if you said 
this is going to be Marlon Brando, which is presumably what Coppola said. You'd think, oh yeah, he is a char- he's an actor that can bring the charisma of this character to life. He is what we need, someone mm-hmm. like Brando. But I just it just doesn't work for me. And and that is the huge anti-climax. I, I don't need everything to explode at the end of the film. I don't. <laughs> but I, I need some philosophical tying up of the loose ends, which exactly as you said, that, that it just doesn't answer the question, what's special about this guy? How has he inspired these people to behave in this way? What is so much worse about how he, how he is compared to everything else they've seen all the way up the river? And aside from it being a bit more gruesome and there are loads of severed heads, there's nothing about the character of Kurtz that really mm. sells that to me. Hence the anticlimax, and I think maybe, maybe Brando fifteen years earlier could have carried it off. I don't know. Yes, I think I feel Coppola. You know, in the documentary, he's pretty much he is. Well, I would say he's almost suicidal. He is actually suicidal. He's like, mm. I'm making a terrible film. And to me, I don't want to read too much into it. To me, I feel it alludes to the fact that the whole climax of the film just doesn't work. And a big part of the reason it doesn't work for me is Brando. Yeah. One thing that did strike me, um, not having read Heart of Darkness until until after I'd seen this, though obviously I was aware of the general outline of the plot, the, the story form this seemed to be going into, the way it's trying to push Willard as gradually getting less and less rational, um, the, the classic way that cycles for me is that uh, Willard would kill Kurtz and then become the new king, in effect. Yes. And I think that was... Well, the screenplay, yeah, exactly, yeah, I agree with you. And so to have him just machete him to death and then sail back again, I said, yeah, I, I, I mean, agree, that, that but... seems to me what, what that whole character arc for him has been working towards. Mm. And then yeah. it just doesn't. <laughs> it just doesn't. I mean, the ending was problematic the whole time. Coppola didn't like. I'd like to talk about John Milius a bit, because he's fascinating. Mm. He wrote, but the, uh, John Milius had written a number of endings, one of which was that the US come towards them and uh, both Willard and uh, Kurtz kind of fight back-to-back against the US and they both die in fire. But there probably were endings where exactly what you suggested happened, or I, I think uh, one, one, one of the North Vietnamese attack. Yeah, one, one of the scripts I've seen has... Um... An, an enemy attack, uh, there's a helicopter evacuation and, uh, they, they shoot down the helicopter because this, this is the land we're fighting for. Kurtz does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And uh, with, with Willard, with or without Willard, there's probably every mm. variation for It feels like the ending they actually end, the, the ending they actually went for was the most anticlimactic of all of those mm. and, and didn't quite. Work. Yeah, because if you hyper-summarise this, it comes out as Willard is given a job to do. He does the job. Exactly, <laughs> he does the job, yeah. And that is, um, even though there's a lot of foreshadowing, he uh, he doesn't actually change course exactly as you say. He just, he just does what he has to do. Um, yeah, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't do it for me. And that leads to my bigger problem with the entire philosophy of that <laughs> section of the film. That this... This idea of the heart of darkness, that there is um, 
there is a light and a dark in every man, and it really is every man in this film, in every man's soul, mm. and in some people, you know, the darkness wins, and they regress to this savagery, and the closer, even though man has built up this civilization, as he moves away from the civilization, that darkness will grow and consume him, and he will become one with the savages that live in the forest. And I just, that's, I just don't believe it. I have a similar problem with it, to that I have with psychohistory and Asimov. That, you know, the whole, the whole, um, foundation trilogy kind of hinges on psychohistory. Mm. And I just don't believe it. I, I just can't imagine. <laughs> I, I, I have a pretty, uh, strong ability to suspend my disbelief, but I can't believe that. And I don't believe that's true of humans. It feels very simplistic to me and quasi religious. Um, this kind of, this good and evil, and evil might win. And pretty racist as well. <laughs> you mm. know, that is from a, a white imperialistic. The implicit in that whole thing is that this idea that we have grown over time and we've become this great and enlightened race, but underneath that there's still the dark, evil savagery. Well, you know, they're not savages that live in there. They're just people. They're, 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 together they're as... a whole lot better at living here than you are. Exactly. <laughs> they, they are. Yeah, they're, they're just nomadic tribes people. There is nothing inherently evil or savage or wrong about that. And there's this, there's a strong smack of this kind of white man's uh, you know, the darkest Africa and all that, that I find extremely distasteful in the whole thing. Yeah. It, it, it is deep, the whole idea. In the book as well, you know, Conrad, uh, reading the book, he's, he's both dismissive of imperialism and dislikes it, but also a believer in it and a supporter of it. In, it in a it's, less... it's a little bit tricky because it's Conrad's narrator. I mean, we never hear Conrad directly. It's always his character telling the story. So, mm. so you can argue that he's putting words in his mouth, but he's, the narrator at least certainly seems to feel that the bad thing about colonialism is that there are some people who, who go out and steal and murder without bringing civilization, and that's just <laughs> exactly. wrong. It's sort of like, um, it's only bad if the wrong sort does it, but he was a big believer in Britain. I mean, I think he invested in a South African diamond mine some years after writing the, the book. Um, he was not anti-imperialist. I, I feel he is much more... We've talked about Kipling before, and I feel Kipling has a much more interesting and nuanced and complicated take on imperialism than I feel Conrad does. Yeah, I, ha having now read uh, Heart of Darkness, I, I can see how... I've known people who are Conrad fans. I can yeah. see how this might catch the imagination, particularly um, you know, a, a teenage lad. It's got this lurid prose. It's got these horrors of foreign lands and people. It's got these flirtations with the spectrum of madness. It's got a near ignorance of women. <laughs> you know, I've, I've known people who read Conrad at a formative age and became fans for life. Um, mm. In my case, I'd already read H.P. Lovecraft, who does all of those <laughs> things and has tentacles. But, you know... <laughs> Very nicely put. But, wow, yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. Um, you, you can't really say overall what, how Conrad felt, I think, but certainly there, there is nothing in what his narrator says to say that it, that he's worked out that overall this might be a bad thing, only that it can be done well or it can be done badly. Yes. So, and I feel that in chasing that view of the human condition, I, uh, for me, apocalypse now falters because I don't believe in that view of human condition. It, uh, the other, the other reason I have a problem with it is it, what you're saying is that we are all 
you know, inherently dark, but we have this thin veneer of civilization. That's original sin. That is the idea of original <laughs> sin. And I, I cannot think of a more toxic way of looking at your own species than believing every single person you know, your friends, your family, you are all deeply evil. You and were born evil and will never be and you, not and evil. You, and you need an external fix to get out of that state, yeah. Exactly. You, you have to climb towards salvation. I, and I, I, I am was not... moderately surprised in the, in the last couple of years in particular to, to discover that uh, with things getting generally harder and so on, I turn out to be quite a nice person. I've, I've been setting up various things for other, pe- for other people to use. Uh, yeah. Okay, fine, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um... I, yeah, I was genuinely exactly. surprised. Thinking, thinking of Heart of Darkness... Because um, we're not all inherently evil. I, no, sorry. The, the, well, I mean, the, the argument there, of course, would be that I'm doing it for the social recognition, I guess, and that's why I'm talking about it now. Uh, well, of course you are, but that's evolution for you. You, you, but... you can define everything in terms of selfishness. It's wonderful. Anyway. Um, <laughs> what a selfish thing to say. So, some, fa- some surprisingly direct things from Heart of Darkness. Uh, the arrow attack. Uh, yes. Uh, that, and, and, that the, kills, and the spear uh, kills the helmsman. Oh, yes, yes. That was uh, an interesting ending. And then dump, to, um, dumping his body in the river. Yes. Uh, that, that, that is Psychedelically. That's di- directly the from book. the book, yeah. Um, and the, the white convert, I mean, in the book it's a Russian, rather than Dennis Hopper, but... <laughs> there can't be many Dennis Hoppers in literature, I must yeah. say. Uh, the, the heads round the base. The, the, yes. The, it, it's odd because they they are so directly lifted but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that isn't so yeah i mean i suppose in the book um the captain i forget his name in the book it's not willard is it it's um i don't know who's named marlow but he's going to rescue kurtz not kill him Mm -hmm. that's a bit of a difference um and there is no direct killing i think kurtz just dies well not anybody important well not of anybody named i mean there's the helmsman but, but, is he just the helmsman? But 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 he's a local and he doesn't get named. Well, no, of course not. He's not civilized. <laughs> I um I I would like to uh, slightly leave. I'm not. I am. I'm not saying humanity is inherently good either. I'm just saying that as a very <laughs> blink. Humanity is capable of extremely awful things and extremely good things, and always has been. I don't think we have ascended to a point in our what remains of white Western democracy. I don't think you can point to us. Uh, point to that system and say there are demonstrably fewer bad things and demonstrably more good things that happen here uh, and then point to you know a, a hunter-gatherer tribe in in South Africa and uh, sorry uh, South America and say they are demonstrably demonstrably less moral it's just not it's just not true it's just not true and I, I dislike the whole thing Anyway, sorry, I'll stop going on. <laughs> well, we, we've mentioned in passing, and I, I would like to expand on this because, in, in terms of films that never got made, this is what I would love to see. Um, the one of the original plans, um, Spielberg and Lucas were encouraging John Milius to do Heart of Darkness in Vietnam, and one of the plans, and the, uh, according to Lucas, this was Milius's idea to send Lucas to do it, was was <laughs> to shoot it actually in Vietnam with sixteen mil cameras on a, on a minimal budget. Uh, the timing would have been about right. They would have been there around the time of the Tet Offensive. Holy smokes. And, yeah, basically, in the end, nobody would fund this because of the extreme risk of them not coming back, or more to the point, not sending any film back. George uh, Lucas must have been bloody relieved when Star Wars did, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, this is no, the thing. By that point, Saigon had fallen, hadn't it? Um, 
it, it is very hard to remember that in the late 60s, when they were talking about this first, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg were the, the angry young men, the anti-establishment mm-hmm. figures. Coppola was kind of their mentor back then. Yeah, he, he, he was going to set up, um, was it American Kinescope, something like that? Uh, Zoetrope. Zoetrope, American thank Zoetrope. You. Um, to, to make, you know, serious good film. And, yes. and, and Lucas and Spielberg were some of the people he wanted working for him. So they were sort of started out as these new, uh, like the new wave directors, but ended up being new Hollywood, um, Lucas and Spielberg. Yeah, and it's I, hard to remember is, that. Is, yeah, I, I do think, looking at this, it feels a whole lot less modern than, than Star Wars or, or Jaws. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, uh, perhaps it's dated more. I mean, it's a very modern way of looking at a war. Well, I didn't know, yeah. It, it just feels a 70s film more than yes, those yes, do, to me. I um, absolutely agree. I, I wonder if you could... All right, I, I am going to argue that this this is not the end, but this is definitely one of the last hurrahs of the American New Wave. Yeah. Because it, it had this huge schedule and budgetary overrun. Um, well, it broke... I mean, certainly Coppola never quite did anything like it. I mean, if we look at before this, Coppola did The Godfather 1 and 2. He did The Conversation. He wrote Pattern. You know, after this, he did what, Godfather 3 and Dracula. There's not, there's not much more. Um, yeah. he, he, he never seemed to be quite the same afterwards. Yeah. But if you also look at uh, the year before this, we have Jaws 2, uh, which was very yes. successful but had some major problems during filming. Uh, the year after this, there's Heaven's Gate, the the famous western that everybody Ooh, hated. Did that bankrupt that completely destroyed one of the studios? Very nearly, yeah. Um, Michael Simino. So while while you can say, I think that Twilight Zone the movie is the definitive end of the American New Wave because that that's the, the the one with the helicopter accident. Oh yes. Oh. Um, and that's the point at which even Spielberg is saying, "I just don't want to have anything to do with you people anymore." I, I think there, there are these several incidents of yeah. Some of some that of these... wasn't in Spielberg's segment. No, it wasn't. John Landis. <laughs> John Landis. Yeah. Yes. Um, there, there are all these films wh- where you've got very much the director having dictatorial power. I mean, we talked mm. about Close Encounters and how Spielberg was rewriting stuff as they went along, yes. and clear, you know, Coppola was doing the same sort of thing with this. Yes. So, and um, the, yeah, the the budget overruns, the delays, the the tendency to let us say incidents, because all sorts of corners were being cut on yeah. safety, health, all the rest of it. And I, I do think that what yeah, this film made an awful lot of money and it won a lot of awards, so that 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 will forgive anything in Hollywood. But yes. I, I do think that this is one of the, one of the points where the studios are saying, "Hang on a minute, do we really want to be?" risking this much money on something where essentially we have no control over how it's spent. Well, this, I mean, this film in particular, though it's very unusual, was, it wasn't a studio film, was it? It was funded by Coppola himself. In part. In part, okay. But yeah, that's one of the reasons why in an era where Hollywood was starting to feel that and after Heaven's Gate was certainly like, nope, I'm not doing that again. Um, yeah, that's one of the reasons why this still had perhaps more creative control. Then certainly, like George Lucas had on Star Wars, it, he had to fight tooth and nail to get that. Yeah, though I mean, we'll, we'll probably come at some point. We're going to talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark, I'm sure. So, oh yes, that's true. <laughs> oh, I'd like to see that. 
Yeah, I, you're right. I, I completely agree. It's the last hurrah. Interestingly, you know, right before we get into the 80s, where it really does feel like we, we're, we're well, in Well, it does a... carry on a bit into the 80s, but I, th- I think this is definitely one of the signposts that is pointing downhill. Yes, I agree. And as you say, the reason this wasn't the nail in the coffin for it was because it made a crap ton of money. Um, mm-hmm. And if it hadn't, that might have been the end of it And all. nobody actually died. Uh, Nobody actually, though, that, you know, there's that bit in the documentary. That's very good. You pointed about like the dictatorial Coppola, where he's, you know, they played down Martin Sheen's heart attack during the film and just said he had heat stroke. And mm-hmm. there's a bit in the documentary where it's like, if he dies, don't tell anyone. We're going to keep going until mm-hmm. I've got enough film. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I was, I, I don't want to talk about the documentary at length, though, though it is very interesting um, do, yeah. in large part because a lot, a lot of it was filmed at the time mm. the thing was being made. Um, I mean, th- this whole thing, like, oh yeah, let's go to the Philippines and, and do a deal with Marcos where he's going to pay us a few thousand a day and, and give us helicopters. Yeah, okay, maybe, maybe people didn't feel the same way about Marcos they did by the time I became aware of him. But, the, okay, I, I, I will quote the line here. I knew that if weather came that I was going to try to incorporate it. I didn't realise that it was, a, it was on such a big scale. And I can't, can't help seeing that as essentially the same, um, imperial arrogance that he's making the film about. You know, oh, yeah. You know, we, we, you go to a place in the States, you, you expect the weather won't be ex- entirely unreasonable, except in tornado season, but nobody goes to those middle states anyway. <laughs> so, you know, we, we go to the Philippines. We'll just what, film what, it. what do you mean typhoon season? Yeah, exactly. And then you have the actor saying, it was raining so hard, it hurt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, the sets were, yeah, I absolutely agree. That, and when we I could feel... back, get back to the sets, they weren't there anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that is one of my issues with, uh, yeah, the book, the film, and the filming, exactly that, that they're trying to puncture imperialism while being a product and supporters of imperialism. Well, like, so, suddenly the guy, the guy saying the, um, the temple construction crew. Uh, he, he's, oh, yeah. he's, he's used to saying if you if you want to hire one more labourer in Hollywood, you know you're paying hundreds or thousands. These guys are paying a couple of bucks a day because that, that's what they ask for. And then he sort of says, as an aside again, the document, he kind of says, "Oh, I hope we weren't exploiting them." Yes, you were. Yeah, obviously you were. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Uh, um, but uh, so fun. Oh, I would like to have some asides about John Milius, so yeah, the yeah. original screenwriter of it. So John Milius, very famous screenwriter, he did Apocalypse Now, he done Conan. He um, he wrote Dirty Harry's. Um, do you feel lucky, punk? He wrote the whole of the um, mm-hmm. Napalm sketch. Red the Dawn, I was, of course. Red Dawn, <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, he. Um, the reason I wanted to reference him, uh, because one of my favourite things ever in Jaws is, of course, the Indianapolis speech, which John Milius um, attributed to himself. Um, <laughs> I would like to point out, this is um, what uh, Carl Gottlieb has to say about it in the Jaws log. He says, "No, I heard John Milius um, said that he wrote it. As far as I'm concerned, it was Robert Shaw that wrote the Indianapolis speech. And if if you get an argument, how does he put it? He says, who are you going to believe? The guy who was there and said that he didn't write it, or the guy who wasn't there and says that he did? He clearly <laughs> did not have much much nice things to say about John Millis. Fascinating character, though, John Millis. A great surfer. You would never believe it. Walter, <laughs> one of my favourite films is The Big Lebowski. One of my TM favourite films ever is The Big Lebowski. Mm-hmm. What I didn't realise is the character of Walter, um, the... Uh, uh, played by John Goodman, is based in large part on John Milius, <laughs> which gives mm-hmm. me a whole different perspective on the character. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have much more to say about that other than I think Coppola should have just stuck with John Milius' ending because John Milius knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And I think Francis Ford Coppola is slightly... Mm, I do feel... Uh, I mean, he paid £3 million for Brando. 
Brando turned up overweight, sorry Marlon, underprepared, famously hadn't read Heart of Darkness, didn't like the name Kurtz, thought his character wouldn't have that name until he realised that's the character in the book. Mm-hmm. So they had to redub Harrison Ford, say, oh, we haven't talked about Harrison Ford. Uh, so I think Coppola just did what he could with the actor that he had, and perhaps yeah. he was expecting a lot more. Yeah, and, um, and by the time they, they got to that stage of the filming, it was already... Desperately over, uh, desperately over time, there was a very limited window in which to do anything. Yes, he so, had three weeks, otherwise he was going to pay a whole lot more for Marlon with his own money. Yeah. And then Marlon Brando was just delaying the whole process. Oh my God, that would have driven me absolutely mad. So I completely understand. Not that I've ever been in that situation. <laughs> Not that anyone else has. Yeah, do you, uh, other, other points about the film? I, the, one, one thing I would like to mention just in passing, this is, yeah, it is a film about the American experience in Vietnam, but it's a film about the American experience in Vietnam. Exactly, exactly. You know, this, this war made America a bit crazy. You know, it, it, a lot of things broke in America. Yes, but also, the time of this. What, what, what I was going to come to is, is that basically all the Vietnamese are basically interchangeable targets and scenery. Exactly. They're, they're, yeah. they're, they're about as, lit- as uh, significant to the narrative as the tiger. Exactly. It is all like, very well put. Yeah, it's it's all about. Oh my God! Look what this war did to us, and it did break America. It caused a lot of trouble in America. Caused a hell of a lot more trouble in Vietnam, though I must say, <laughs> and, and mm-hmm. that doesn't seem to get. Uh, I mean, God knows how many. Uh, well, God might know, but no one else does because the Americans didn't really keep count. Even though in Vietnam their way of knowing whether they were winning the war, because they didn't have any... Territory gains were meaningless in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. The only way they could tell how well they were doing was how many people they killed. So they Mm -hmm. kept a reasonably good body count. That was their way of keeping score of the film. Um, But still, it's it's not really known how many people, how many Vietnamese died in Vietnam, but it was a hell of a lot more than the Americans. Mm -hmm. And I I agree. And I think that is true of most... We may well come on to this, depending on what we do know, but I think it's true of most films about Vietnam. It's certainly true of Platoon and A Full Metal Jacket. There are uh, there are a handful of films that do it from the Vietnamese point of view, including... Yeah. Uh, it, I feel it would be nice to have something more even-handed, but as as we've said, this was the first film hmm. to do a, a, a serious treatment of the war. So yes. it, it can be forgiven to some extent. It's just a thing yes. that, that seeing it in isolation just rubs me a bit wrong now. Yeah, I suppose we could. We said similar things, and I, um, for some reason, I'm less incensed of it here, and probably because I'm more used to it in a Vietnam film. You know, I, I did find it a problem in The Man Who Would Be King. Mm. Even though, as you rightly pointed out, it served the story, and here it probably served the story too, and it's, it's forgivable in that sense. But it is exactly as you say. It's, it's like, I don't know, some big kid whining because when he punched someone, they punched <laughs> they him back. It, yeah, yeah, and he broke his fist and he's upset even though he killed the kid. I, yeah, it just, uh, yeah, I, I agree. It, it, it is uncomfortable. Well, I, I'm just going to borrow, borrow that very pro- tangential reference to Kipling and say a scrimmage in a border station, a canter down some dark defile, 2,000 pounds of education drops to a 10 rupee gisile. The crammers boast the squadron's pride, shot like a rabbit in a ride. Arithmetic <laughs> on the frontier. Yes, yeah, well that is, yeah, you're never gonna, when your, when your super soldier costs a million dollars and theirs costs ten dollars, then you're not gonna win very mm-hmm. Yeah, that's nicely put to Kipling. Oh, this Kipling guy, he might have some writing chops, you know. <laughs> ah, journalists, what can you do? 
<laughs> um, I have ranted enough about Apocalypse Now, I feel. I, I, I've got a couple of peripheral I, things to mention. Of but yes, yes, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, as we've said, it's been hugely influential. Yeah. Uh, and not, not only in terms of, don't make your film this way. <laughs> <laughs> it will break you. Um, well, one that I think may have led into it is uh, Herzog's Achwer the Wrath of God, which I haven't oh. seen. I love Werner Herzog. We've got to have some Herzog in Yeah, but but similarly, you know, going along the river, gradually losing people, gradually going more and more mad. Mm. I, I'm i not saying it's a copy. I don't think it is a copy, but I'm sure it would have been an influence on Coppola. Yes, I think you're probably right. Um, and a book that I, I would very much recommend. It's not... not much fits Corral, though, is it? Mm. Not, not a comfortable book. Uh, Robert Mason's uh, Chicken Hawk, which right. he, he wrote a few years after this. Uh, he he was basically a Huey pilot, okay, in Vietnam uh, until he went sufficiently mad that that they wouldn't let even him do it anymore. Okay, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's a fascinating combination of yeah. Here, here is the crap that we were actually getting told on the front lines, and we were seeing that this was blatantly untrue, but yeah, mm. we were still getting told it. Also, some yeah. good aviation detail if if you're into that sort of thing, which I am. <laughs> Well, that to me, that is more interesting to me about the Vietnam War. You know, the whole beginning bit with Kilgore is much more interesting to me than this pseudo, I don't know, philosophical religious um, pontification on the on the, <laughs> on the human soul. I just rather, yeah. Anyway, but I got, what was the name of that book again? Uh, Chicken Hawk. Chicken Hawk. Um, I, if we're recommending books, I'm going to heartily recommend King Leopold's Ghost by Adam Hothschild, which is about what the Belgians done in the Congo, or, mm. or more specifically what um, the king of the Belgians did in the Congo. Yeah, I, I've, I've read the chapter on uh, Heart of Darkness. It's it's a very good read, um, and you will come out of it with a very different opinion of uh, Stanley of um, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Stanley Livingston, who was a deeply yeah. pleasant character. Um, Murdered his way down the river and said, yay me! Yes, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> very good at self-promotion, very good at killing people. Um, but not the, not the, only the right sort of people, obviously. <laughs> um, super. Okay, should we have a look at the, the top ten of 1939? Yeah. And, well, I will say it's in them. Uh, Fair enough. So, at number ten, The Muppet Movie. <laughs> wow, very different to Apocalypse Now. <laughs> Uh, so this was, I think, a few years after the series had got established. I, 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 my Muppet timeline is not yeah, great. But anyway. Uh, so, so this is the first Muppet movie, all right? Yeah. Uh, number nine, Moonraker, James Bond. Oh. An interesting one. Uh, <laughs> half of it was written by somebody competent, and then I think the other half, they, they, they let in the monkey that the, that the union had demanded. <laughs> The monkey that had, uh, had radiation fired into its brain that said, he must go into space, everything must go into space now. <laughs> well, yeah, Star Wars was big. Uh, that was, I mean, I've actually read the Moonraker book, which bears no resemblance. <laughs> indeed. Uh, number eight, The Jerk, uh, Carl Reiner directing Ooh. Steve Martin. Oh, Very good film. Not soon I, I like but... it. Uh, Steve Martin can very much veer into zany, but it's it's funny. It's funny. Uh, at number seven, ten, uh, romantic comedy, Bo Derek. Goodness me, I wonder how that has aged. Probably not very well, I expect. Dudley Moore as well, I think. But... Yeah. Wow. Uh, at number six, Alien. Hey. About which 
if we don't do an episode about this, I'm going to do one solo. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I would. I mean, I think we have to do. We're probably going to do a joint alien aliens episode. Cause Seems fair. I, yeah. I'll probably stop at that and not go any further <laughs> in the alien. Uh, canon. Well, obviously. Yeah. And you, okay. you, well, there you, is. You, you mean you're saying they've made other films? I, I don't believe it. I'm sorry, Roger. I've blasphemed and must be punished. Uh, number five, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Ooh, interesting. Coming off the back of... Um, because uh, uh, that was directed by... Oh, my goodness. Robert Wise. Robert Wise, who yeah. directed our, our film we talked about last week. Um, uh, the day the Earth stood still. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, this, and this was, yeah, this this was kind of strange. Uh, it, it was originally going to be the pilot of a new TV series, and and then it went through all sorts of weird manipulations. But anyway, Gen- uh, general feeling is too slow and too pseudo philosophical. The the it's sequence not, I like to show people is that multi minute fly around of the Enterprise because either you think, yay, I want to see more of this. Or you think, what the hell is this all about? Why, why, yeah? Are we still watching the spaceship? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and number four, Apocalypse Now, uh, bringing in okay. uh, 83 million gross. Uh, okay, so he got his money back. Good old <laughs> And at number three, Rocky Two. Really? I, I, I should visit the Rocky films. Never watched any of them. Uh, Rocky... The one where Apollo Creed dies. Oh, spoiler. Sorry, I've seen that one a bit. <laughs> I've never really got on with either Stallone or sports dramas, so... No. Yeah, maybe same. one day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at number two, the Amityville Horror. The, Ooh, the original okay. one. Uh, yeah, all right. Uh, it's all nonsense, but uh, <laughs> but it's an interesting... It's I, self-serving I can nonsense at that, but yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and I, I this like was the film that did the eye windows. And I, I, oh, I feel yes. that the quality of all the sequels can be judged by whether they have the eye windows. Here's a hit, <laughs> most of them don't. <laughs> uh, this, this may be the first top ten where I've known all the films in it. Let's see. And at number one, Kramer versus Kramer. Oh, now that is a film we considered watching for this. Uh, I did read a bit around it, actually. But I, I think it would have been churlish to avoid Apocalypse Now. I, I also you? have... I, I do not get on with films that can be quickly summarised as pretty white people problems. I mean, you could say that about Apocalypse Now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair point. <laughs> yeah, but I agree with you. Yeah, it's. Um, I, uh, I I did not feel enthusiasm for it. Let's just say. No, neither did I. So you, you, it was very, very wise to me. How interesting! So and that, that was at 106 mil, uh, whereas Apocalypse Now was 83 mil. So not not a huge margin there. Would be a bit galling to have spent a year in the Philippines paying a dictator off <laughs> um, <laughs> to make less money than a divorce drama. Oh dear. Um, there we go. Interesting. Yeah, I I know all of those films and I've seen almost all of them actually. As well. <laughs> yeah, interesting. I wonder if that will be a trend that carries on as we enter the eighties. Definitely getting into the era where, if even if I didn't watch the films at the time, I've tended to see them since, if if they've got any sort of lasting reputation. Yes, yeah, same for me, really. Yeah. Well, there we go. I very much enjoyed Apocalypse Now uh, in the sense that it certainly got me thinking, which was the whole point of this podcast mm-hmm. for me. And I well, enjoyed... one of your definitions is, do I want to watch it again immediately? And I've got to say, no. <laughs> no, fair enough. Uh, I would maybe watch it again in 10 years. I, I wouldn't... I'm not going to yes. never watch it again. I'm, I'm yes, quite likely exactly. to watch it again at some point. Yes, Pro- probably for a reason, like, like when I rip it off for a role-playing scenario. <laughs> um, yes, very good. 
Me too. Well, there we go. I think uh, we have, uh, I, apart from the Redux version, which we'll release separately, I think we've blundered to the end of this, possibly our longest podcast ever, which is appropriate for Apocalypse Now. Um, <laughs> and it only remains for me to incoherently mutter, The horror. The horror. The <laughs> horror.